Father, we come in the name of Christ to ask for the Holy Spirit to make the scriptures clear to us as we hear them this morning. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We have as Christians committed to keep your righteous rules, which we find in your word. And some of us might be here this morning feeling severely afflicted. So give us life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept the freewill offerings of our praise and teach us your ways. Even if the wicked have laid a snare for us, may we not stray from your precepts. For your testimonies are the heritage that we will cherish forever. They are a joy for our hearts. We sit here this morning ready, Lord, to incline our hearts to follow your son Jesus and to walk in his ways forever to the end. So, Father, may the words of our captain and our king Jesus strike our hearts today to stir us up to more action, affection, and attention for your kingdom, for our good and your glory. Amen. If you would, uh, stand with me now for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, starting in Exodus chapter 24, verse 1. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. All the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief of the people of Israel, for they beheld God and ate and drank. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now we turn over to Mark chapter 14, picking up where we left off last week in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? 
And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. This morning we're covering the topic of the Lord's Supper, amongst other things that are found in this text. Uh, But in my studies of the Lord's Supper, it's pretty clear that even before the Protestant Reformation, not everybody was on the same page on this topic. There was one guy named Berigar of Tours around the 11th century or so, uh, who was constantly teaching contrary to the official doctrine of Rome on the Lord's Supper, and he kept getting brought up on charges, and then he would recant. And then a few years later, he'd start teaching the right doctrine again. And then he'd get brought up on charges. And then he'd recant. He did that basically four times. And then he he died in the good graces of the Roman Catholic Church because he didn't really stand for his convictions openly all the way to his death. He was this close to basically being a pre-Reformation reformer. But there can be no question that the apostolic church devoted themselves to the partaking of the Lord's Supper together on a regular basis. They understood that they had an opportunity on every Lord's Day, every Sunday, to corporately worship the Lord and to enter into the presence of Jesus and commune together with him. They understood that Jesus provided a way for his people to be in his presence even after he had ascended to the right hand of God the Father. That's the big idea of this sermon today. The king provides the way for his people to feast with him. We see this from Genesis to Revelation, that the Lord provides the way for his people to feast with him. In this passage, we're going to see how the Lord Jesus himself plays the role of host, a host who made arrangements for his people, his men, to enjoy an old covenant meal together. And within the context of that old covenant meal, he instituted the new covenant meal, most commonly known as the Lord's Supper. I want to tackle these verses in two sections. Section 1, verses 12 through 21, is kind of pre-institution of the Lord's Supper, and then we're going to focus on the verses that cover the institution of the Lord's Supper itself. I want us to understand the circumstances of this Passover meal. We see that three men were involved in helping Jesus prepare this feast. I mean, a host would have a really hard time preparing this meal all by Uh, themselves. Uh, There's the room. The room has to be kind of arranged in in a certain way, and the table has to be set up, and then the actual meal has to be prepared. From what we understand from other gospel accounts, the two disciples that he sent were Peter and John, part of his inner circle. But isn't it interesting in this text that Jesus didn't have to come to them and say, all right, guys, go into the city and prepare the Passover for me. No, the disciples came to him. Did you catch that? They come and and initiate with Jesus, ready, eager, willing to serve Christ and to serve their fellow disciples. And they're sent into the city, and they find the third person who plays a major role in setting up this Passover meal, 
and it was a guy carrying water. Some people speculate that this was John Mark, who's the guy who's uh, writing uh, this book that we're, that we're preaching and teaching from right now. That's kind of speculative. We don't have any direct evidence that that's the case. But here's what's interesting. In my studies on this, because you might think, as you heard last week, with uh, hundreds of thousands or maybe even millions of people in this city at one time, a lot of men would be there. How in the world are they going to find a man carrying a water jug and know it's the right one? Well, culturally, that was woman's work. There was like one small kind of group called the Essenes, according to R.C. Sproul, where it was kind of common for men to do this kind of work of carrying the water. But in, in a lot of cultures throughout history, even cultures today, uh, the primary task of fetching and carrying water is usually given to women and to children. So imagine if I told you Monday morning at 9 a.m. going to downtown Nashville and find a guy wearing a business suit. You'd be like, that's a needle in a haystack. But then I said, well, wait a minute. He's going to have his jacket on backwards, and his necktie is going to be tied like a bow tie. He's basically going to look like a clown, right? That's going to be easy for you and a, and a teammate to spot, right? If this is kind of a goofy downtown Nashville scavenger hunt. You're going to be able to find the guy who's wearing everything all wrong, okay? So they were able to find this guy very easily because he was doing something that probably no other guy in Jerusalem was doing that day. He's carrying water. And then without engaging him, they just have to like, kind of like creepers, just kind of follow him <laughs> until he goes into a certain house. And then after he gets to in his house, he turns around, there's these two disciples, and they're like, hey, the master wants to know uh, what's the deal with the, his guest room. Apparently there was an arrangement made before. Uh, this guy was probably carrying water because Jesus was like, hey, uh, this coming Passover, I want you to prepare a room for me. And uh, so this guy isn't like master teacher. Who are you talking about? Who's this guy asking for a room? He probably would have known that it was Jesus who was asking for this room. And so he would have had it all prepared. So here's an application for us. We should seek opportunities to serve the Lord and his people. Uh, we should delight that we get to participate in what the Lord is doing. It, we're not told in this text about the attitude of the man carrying the water, but we don't get an indication that he was grumbling as he did it, even though it was you know, a, a job that was more fit for a teenager or for a woman in his culture. So we should delight that we get to participate in what the Lord is doing. The second thing I want you to understand is the room itself. There's a, a huge significance to the upper room, which, by the way, the text calls it, uh, it's translated in English as large, sometimes very large, but the Greek word is where we get the word, the English word mega. This is a mega room. It's a big room big enough to hold not only the 12 disciples, but also their families. Uh, some scholars and teachers speculate that it wasn't just the 12 disciples there, because culturally it'd be very odd for these men who had wives and children, not all of them did, but it'd be odd for these men who did have families to not partake of the Passover with their wives and children. That's just, that's just kind of bizarre, because as the head of a household, you're responsible for leading your family through this Passover feast and catechizing your children and bestowing blessings upon them. But the language of the, the synoptic gospels in particular seems to describe this meal as though it's only the 12 disciples there. So if it would be culturally weird for it just to be Jesus and the 12 disciples, and, and the language of the gospel seems to only have Jesus and the 12 there, how do we make sense of these things? Well, I think it's actually a literary device to make sure that we understand that there's a connection between this meal, the institution of the Lord's Supper, and the meal that we just read about in Exodus chapter 24. Because what happens in Exodus chapter 24? 
The people stayed down here, but the chief men, that's what Exodus 24 calls these 76 some odd men, the, the chief men of Israel, these representatives of the people, go up the mountain and eat and drink in the presence of God. And God doesn't kill them, right? He welcomes them into, into his holy presence and they eat and drink together in the presence of God. It's quite amazing. And what's happening here in this text is the representatives of the new covenant Israel, the apostles, are ascending the mountaintop. They're ascending into the upper room to eat in the very presence of the Lord. Do you see the connection here? This meal, this, this new covenant meal, the Lord's Supper, is established in the context of Passover, but the language of it harkens more back to that meal in Exodus 24 than it does to the Passover. So we have to keep in mind that there's, there's elements drawn certainly from Passover, but also and probably more so from that meal in Exodus 24. Here's an application. We should understand the immense gravity of this new covenant meal and what it represents. In this meal, just like these men in Exodus 24, mere mortals like us, we are, in a spiritual sense, going up the mountain to meet the Lord where he is and to commune with him. This is incredible. Now, I want you to understand the liturgy of the Passover. Depending on how you calculate it, there's 14 to 15 elements, and there would have been four cups of of wine, okay? And, and each of those cups, as they were partook, would kind of end one section of the Passover liturgy and move them on to the next. They would have enjoyed, let me uh, back up for a second, Exodus 6, there's a fourfold promise from God to the covenant people that he's going to lead them out of Israel, and that's what the four cups are symbolic of. They're symbolic of that fourfold promise of God to Israel to lead them out of, out of bondage and to redeem them. And another element drawn from their time in, in Egypt at this meal would be a reddish stew. Depending on who you talk to, it would be like a reddish fruit stew or a reddish, very simple reddish vegetable stew. And that would remind them of the bricks that their forefathers had to make uh, for the Egyptian pharaoh. There would be uh, lots of matzah, right? Matzah is uh, an unleavened bread. There'd be a whole lot of this unleavened bread, which is what they partook of there in Egypt because they didn't have time to let the bread leaven because God's like, look, you got to eat and be ready to go and get out of here. Get out of Egypt. You don't have time to let that bread grow and then bake it like that. It's got to be unleavened bread. So that's what they partook of. And then there was bitter herbs that remind them of the bitterness of slavery. And of course, there would be the roasted lamb. That's the centerpiece of this meal that they would have partaken of. Roasted lamb representing the lambs that were slaughtered so that they could put the blood over the, the doorposts and have the angel of death pass over them as they were in slavery. The oldest son at one point in the, uh, in the meal would ask the head of the, the household a question about what all of this meant. And then the father, the head of this meal, would begin to catechize everybody in the room. He would, he would have blessed them in this meal. He would have bestowed blessings upon them. He would have prayed prayers to the Lord and, and uh, blessings upon the Lord. But he would have spent time retelling the story of the book of Exodus and then unpacking the different elements, explaining the different elements to the people at the meal. So even in Passover, we see the importance of what God tells us, both in the book of Ephesians and in Deuteronomy 6, that the father is to lead in the instruction of his children. Now, uh, they, would, they would sing psalms during this meal. The Hallel Psalms are Psalms 113 through 118. And it's, I can't, it's hard. There's differing accounts of this out there as you, as you try to study the matter. Uh, when they would sing 113 and 114 and 115 and 160, it's kind of hard to say. But they would definitely close 
with Psalm 117 and 118. And, and, and some accounts say that they would also sing 116 at the end. Other accounts say, no, they would have sung 116 earlier in the evening. But the third cup, right, they go through each cup, and each cup is symbolic of something. The third cup is known as the cup of redemption, the cup of redemption. And that's the cup that Jesus is holding up as he institutes the Lord's Supper. That's not by accident. There's other cups that he could have raised at that time to institute the Lord's Supper, but he uses the cup of redemption. We should get the message here, folks. This meal before us today, this is about our redemption, right? And that's something to celebrate, isn't it? Once you understand the implications in these verses of Judas's betrayal, that's the next thing we're going to look at in verses 18 through 21. What can we take away from this? As we're, I know we're talking about Passover and about the institution of the Lord's Supper, but we have to address the betrayal of the Son of Man. We have to address Judas. What can we take away from these verses about Judas's betrayal of Jesus? First, apostasy is real. I'm a Presbyterian. I believe, uh, you know, I'm a Calvinist. I believe in the perseverance of the saints. Absolutely. And yet, the Bible teaches us that apostasy is real. There's a falling away that occurs in the Bible. If you don't believe that, if you don't believe that apostasy is real, you basically have to take the warnings of the book of 1 John and the warnings of Hebrews chapter 6 and just say, these are just empty warnings. God is warning us. He's using strong language, but he doesn't really think that apostasy can happen. And that's simply not the case. John makes it very clear in 1 John. There were people that were part of us. There were people that were part of the visible church. They went out from us, but they weren't really of us. What does he mean there? Well, there's where we understand the distinction between the visible and invisible church. They were never really converted from the heart, but they looked for a season like they were. Apostasy is real. Second thing I want us to understand from this passage uh, is that God is sovereign over sin, and yet man is responsible for sin. You know, it's interesting uh, it's interesting that uh, about two years ago, uh, Christian and I have talked about this before, there was this big, uh, big tattoo movement. It was a tattoo set on people's forearms right here and here. It would say Judas ate too, and then there'd be a scripture uh, talking about how Judas was at this meal. And the whole driving force behind this, uh, this, this kind of brief uh, movement on social media was to kind of draw you in and be like, oh, isn't God gracious and merciful that Jesus allowed Judas to eat too? at this meal. They picked the wrong apostle, folks. That tattoo, if you're going to get one that deals with that issue, it should have said Peter ate too. Because it's amazing that Peter was at this meal, turns around, swears, Jesus, I'm never going to leave you, even if all these jokers abandon you, not me. And with the hours, he's denied Christ three times. And then he's restored, and he becomes the leader of the early church. That's amazing. The fact that Judas is at this meal just hours before denying Christ is a sign of the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus. See, the fact that Judas is at this meal is not the sweet, sentimental thing that all those people that got that unfortunate tattoo thought it was. The fact that Judas is at this meal, in fact, not only is he at this meal, but he's, if you kind of read between the lines of the gospel accounts, he's in the place of the guest of honor. He's to the left of the host, which is Jesus. Isn't that amazing? That shouldn't make us go, oh, that's so sweet. That should alarm us. We should be alarmed by the fact that Judas ate too. And here's what the text says. As it is written, so the Son of Man goes. The Lord knew this was going to happen. The Lord didn't show up 
and go, I'm surprised that one of my apostles is going to betray me. He didn't kind of like figure it out along the way. It was foreordained. It was the amount of money that Judas received was predicted by the prophets hundreds of years before. God is sovereign over this. He's sovereign over evil. He's sovereign over the sins of men. He ordains it. He allows it to happen. And yet, man is responsible for sin. That's what we see in the scriptures. God is the first mover. He works through secondary causes. And despite the most evil, heinous men and their worst deeds, God works all things together for the good of those that love him. This was premeditated. See, what Peter did was not premeditated betrayal. This right here, the action of Judas, is a premeditated, traitorous deed. It's evil and wicked. And yet God is sovereign over it. He knows it's coming to pass. And he says, it would be better for Judas to have not been born. That's how serious this is. That's the judgment that is coming for Judas. Folks, we should not give evil a free pass. God doesn't. And isn't that comforting? Some people look at passages like this and they're disturbed by it because they're like, well, how could God, I mean, he says, as it is written, he knows this is coming. How could a good God allow these evil things to happen? But I think we should have the opposite response. We should be comforted that despite the worst efforts of the most evil men in history, God is sovereign over all of it. God is unstoppable despite the great wickedness of the world. We should trust that God is sovereign over all things. And note here what title Jesus uses in the context of his betrayal and suffering, the Son of Man. That would have struck first century Jewish men like a thunderbolt. Here's why. The Son of Man is the title used by Daniel. And the Son of Man in those prophecies, is, you know, he comes to the Ancient of Days and receives all of this dominion, all of this authority, all of this glory. And it's Isaiah that uses the imagery of the suffering servant who's betrayed, who's pierced for our transgressions, he's slaughtered for our sins. And now Jesus, for the first time in history, they're hearing this title of, of Son of Man in the context of betrayal, which leads to great suffering and death. It would be hard for the average Jewish person to go, okay, son of man, suffering servant, Daniel and Isaiah, this is one guy. And Jesus is making it abundantly clear. These two are the same, and I'm him. Now, at one point, in the middle of the Passover liturgy, Jesus institutes a new thing. The king is giving a new ordinance for his church. What are the different names for this new covenant meal? It's the word the Lord's Supper is the most common, but it's not used in this passage. There's really no title or name given to this meal in these verses. But Paul calls it the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20. Paul calls it the Lord's table. All the contents upon it belong to the Lord in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 21. Luke, writing in Acts 2 and Acts 20, refers to this as the breaking of bread. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 through 17, calls it participation or communion. Jesus, in the Synoptic Gospels, uses this Greek word eucharisteo, meaning giving thanks. That's where a lot of Christian traditions get the word eucharist, and that's what they primarily call it. You'll often hear me call it the New Covenant Meal because I don't want to leave any of those titles out. <laughs> I like what all of them mean. It's the Lord's Supper. He's the host of the meal. It's the Lord's table. On it are things that represent him, his body and his blood. We're breaking bread together. We're communing together, fellowshipping, participating in it together. We're giving thanks as we do it. 
Church, we should come to this meal as it is. What do we call this? What's the verb that we use? Celebrating the Lord's Supper. Celebrating the Eucharist. Celebrating communion. I I think the average evangelical, and I I can tell you as your pastor, I'm concerned for some of you, because some of you, you walk up here, and and it's like you still wonder whether or not you've been given the assurance of pardon that we gave you earlier in the liturgy. See, it's, it's amazing when you observe the average Protestant Christian come to the Lord's table. They kind of shuffle up with their head down. They kind of have this sad look on their face. They're, they're considering all of their sins. Church, we've already done that. That's why we call you to repentance. That's why we, we confess our sin together. And then we assure you from God's holy and errant and life-giving word that you've been assured, that you've been pardoned. So as we come to this meal, we should come celebrating. Not because we've earned forgiveness, not because we've earned it, but because of the merits of Christ, because of his body offered for us, because of his blood shed for us, poured out for us. We can come to this meal celebrating because as Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Sometimes I wonder as people come to communion in various traditions, if they really believe that it is finished as they shuffle forward with sad and gloomy looks on their faces. This is a joyous thing. We've been forgiven. Let's talk about the elements of the Lord's Supper. There's wide disagreement on this. It's, it, here's the too long, didn't read answer in terms of what elements we should use. Bread and wine. Right? I'm with John Calvin on the bread issue. Unleavened bread, leavened bread, I don't think it matters. It's clear, though, that the, the bread that they would have used during the first Lord's Supper had to have been unleavened. It's in the context of Passover. That's the bread they had on hand. But there's two different Greek words for bread. One is the Greek word for unleavened bread, and then the Greek word for leavened bread is artos. And artos would be like a small kind of basic round loaf from the first century. And even in this context where we know that it was unleavened bread, they use that word. It's a general bread. What do you have on hand? What kind of bread you got? You got leavened, you got unleavened? With gluten, gluten-free, bread. Okay? Use bread. What about what was in the cup? You'll notice, and the, the Baptists in the room will get really excited about this, the word wine is never used in the context of this meal. But guess what? We know that's what it was because that's what they had at Passover. We know that's what they were using uh, in communion because the Corinthians were consuming the wine in disorderly, uh, sinful ways and getting drunk off of it. Welch's doesn't get you drunk. It'll give you a tummy ache real bad if you drink too much. This is wine. And as I mentioned earlier, at Passover, there would have been four cups of it at this very long meal. So we use wine. Here's what I would encourage all of you. I I know that we also serve grape juice here. Uh, I would encourage you, unless you have a medical reason, take the wine. Unless you have... A, a concern in your conscience about consuming alcohol. That requires pastoral counsel. Come talk to one of your elders. We'll work through that. Okay? But I, I think it's clear that what the church used, the first time in history that the church stopped using wine and started using grape juice was in the temperance movement, which is the product of first wave feminism. It's amazing how first wave femi- feminism has corrupted so many things in the American evangelical church, including the elements that we use in the Lord's Supper. I encourage you. Use the wine. Some of you might say, I don't like the way it tastes. Do you think that it tasted good for Jesus to drink the cup of the wrath of God on the cross? 
This is not about our comfort. This is about remembering what Christ has done. So I would encourage you, dare to make yourself a little uncomfortable. Perhaps the bitterness of the wine in your mouth will remind you of the bitterness that Jesus experienced on the cross as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you can celebrate that that was him and not you. We should be as faithful as we can to the elements. We should try to be charitable to one another in disagreements, but we should also be intellectually honest. There are people who prefer a single loaf. There are people that prefer a a common cup, and I understand all of that. I don't think they're doing anything wrong. I think it's uh, totally fine to use a common cup. If you're ever at a church where they're using a silver or copper a chalice of wine and they're kind of passing it around and wiping the rim after every person partakes, I encourage you to go forward. There's lots of scientific research that shows that using copper and silver, the, the, uh, the, the properties of that metal in God's providence uh, really does wonders to kill any bacteria that your neighbor might have left on the rim of the cup. Okay, uh, If you're in a church that's doing common cup and it's ceramic, uh, I don't know about that. You're on your own, all right? You know, you know, go, go for it, but, you know, just know it's not copper and silver. I don't have any data that would show me that ceramic or plastic would, uh, would do you any good, all right? How do we understand the actions and terms used by Jesus here? I, I, I goofed up a lot on this early on in my ministry here. Uh, not a lot, a handful of times before I got myself sorted out. But you'll notice that as I hand you the elements... Uh, as we're over here or over here, I do not say this is the body of Christ broken for you. The bread was broken, but not the body of Christ. In fact, this is important. He died before the centurions could get to him to break his legs. This is fulfilling the prophecies and the parameters of the Paschal Lamb in Numbers 9, Psalm 34. John 19 makes it very clear that Christ's body was not broken. The bread was blessed and broken so that it could be distributed, so that you could all partake of of the body of Christ by faith. So that's why I say this is the body of Christ, which is for you or given for you, because that's more technically correct. Now, you'll notice here uh, that he uses the phrase, my blood of, of the covenant, and some manuscripts, some of you will see this in your Bibles. You see it in your Bibles? There's a footnote for many versions that says that early manuscripts have the word new, right? There are some people that think the new covenant hasn't come to pass yet, the new covenant promised in Jeremiah 31. I believe that what happened in the early church is that faithful scribes uh, understood that Jesus is establishing the new covenant, and that as they're uh, making copies of the New Testament, that just accidentally they put the word new in there because that's how they understood this meal. I don't think it was probably intentional, or I don't think they were uh, goofing up on purpose. I think it was an honest uh, transcribal error being you know, projected by someone that understood what this meal is all about. But it's clear that this is drawing from Exodus 24. Here's the difference, though. Here's another encouragement for you to partake of the wine, right? Do you notice the differences between the application of the blood of the covenant in Exodus 24 and the blood of the covenant here? In Exodus 24, the people got covered in the blood of animals. You think they enjoyed that? So just let me encourage you. Even if you don't like the taste of wine, you're way better off than they were. You get to partake of wine. They got covered in animals' blood. The blood, of the, the blood of the covenant. You want that or do you want this? This is better, right? Everybody should say amen. Okay. Now, what did Jesus mean? Here's the big one. What did Jesus mean by this is my body? This is 
my blood. This is where we as Presbyterians and, and other traditions that join us in this theology, uh, we stand uh, very contrary to Lutherans and to Roman Catholics. I, I don't really know what the Eastern Orthodox Church believes about this because they're really proud of how little they know about uh, certain aspects of theology. It's like everything's a mystery, and that's awesome. Uh, but we actually do have an explanation for this. So here's the, here's the view of Rome. Transubstantiation, meaning change in substance. They believe in a real physical presence in the elements. They believe that as the priest says the words of institution, that although visibly speaking, it still looks like bread and still looks like wine, still tastes like bread and wine, that it's actually the real physical body and blood of Jesus. Okay, that's what they believe. Now, that is grounded in the physics, the metaphysics of Aristotle, not in actual uh, scientific physics. Okay? That's where the church was drawing from uh, a Greco-Roman pagan understanding of the way that physics works. And it's also, the irony here is, and this is, what I, this is what I say to Roman Catholics when I talk to them about this, is it's actually contrary to the doctrine of the Chalcedonian definition. The Chalcedonian definition written in 451 AD makes it clear that Christ has two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. And there's a union of the nature, but not a confusion or a mixing of them. Okay? What this doctrine of Rome does is it applies the properties of his divinity to his human nature. Your human nature, unless you're like William Wallace and you get beheaded, drawn, and quartered, and have your body sent all over England and Scotland, you can only be in one place at one time while you're alive, right? That is true of the physical human nature of Jesus. His body, he is at the right hand as the resurrected, glorified king of kings. He's at the right hand of God the Father. He's always been, spiritually speaking, according to his divinity, omnipresent. But according to his humanity, he's in one place at a time. So what I've told people who are leaving Protestantism for Roman Catholicism, I said, look, you can either have the mass or you can have the Chalcedonian definition. And if you reject the Chalcedonian definition, what does that make you? A heretic. And you know me, I don't use that word often. I'm very conservative with the use of that word. But that's the score. And, and what the Lutherans did, what Luther did, wasn't much better. We owe Martin Luther a lot, but he big time whiffed on consubstantiation. That's the, the title of the doctrine of the Lutheran church, which means with substance, right? He, he understood, well, we can't say, we can't goof around with Aristotle's metaphysics and say that somehow this bread, which looks like bread, and this wine, which looks like wine, is somehow transformed into the actual body and blood. But what we can say is that the body of Christ and the blood of Christ is in, with, and underneath these substances, the body and blood of Christ are actually, in a physical way, in, with, and under the elements. This is what some people called surreal presence. At Marburg, he met with Zwingli and Martin Bootser and others, uh, and he kept banging his hand on the table and scrawling the word, hoc est corpus meum, which is Latin for this is my body. And he kept underlining the word est over and over and over again. He's basically shouted down the people that he disagreed with. This is actually where we get the phrase hocus pocus. Hoc est corpus meum. Because for the average Protestant reformer, what Luther was talking about and what Rome was talking about is hocus pocus. And they have the same problem that Rome has with disagreeing with the Chalcedonian definition. Because if Christ is physically in, with, and underneath the elements, what have you just done? You've just applied divine attributes of omnipresence to the human, physical nature of Christ. I think these views are inferior to the Reformed view because instead of us being elevated spiritually to where Christ is, they're saying that Christ is physically, 
but invisible to our eyes, brought down to where we are. Now, the default Protestant view isn't much better. It's the memorialist view. I call this the real, the real absence view. They think that Jesus is absent in this meal, which is weird because Jesus said, I will be with you unto the end of the age. Obviously, spiritually speaking, as he ascended physically to the right hand of God the Father. But somehow this is purely symbolic. It's solely a memorial. It's not a means of grace. It's not a sacrament. It's just an ordinance. As you partake of this, in their view, nothing happens at all. But this is incompatible with the teaching of Jesus in John 6. Jesus makes it very clear. You want to follow me? You have to eat my body and drink of my blood. And what happened? He had like 120 disciples, and all of a sudden, there's just 12 of them left standing there. Because <laughs> they, couldn't, they couldn't wrap their heads around this. They rejected this teaching. Again, the physics are bizarre of this. This is really drawn from uh, Platonism. Platonism had infected the church at that time, and, and Platonism creates a dichotomy between the physical and spiritual realms that the Bible simply does not create. And so in their view, nothing's going on here. But here's Calvin's view. Here's my view. Spiritual presence, which is real. Sometimes people say, what's your take on the Lord's Supper? Is there real presence? I'm like, absolutely. And then they panic because they think I'm Roman Catholic or Lutheran or something. And I'm like, well, why does that scare you? Why does it bother you that I would say that there's real presence of Christ here in this meal? Well, because spiritual presence is the correct view. I'm like, yes, that's right. Are you a materialist or are you a Christian? Are spiritual things real? Yes. That's what we believe as Christians. Both material and immaterial things are real. So even if Christ is not corporally and carnally physically present, that's what we reject as Presbyterians. We reject that idea. But even if he's just spiritually present with us, isn't that real? Is the Holy Spirit physically present with you? No, he's spiritually present with you. Is the Holy Spirit of God real? Yes. So our view as Presbyterians is that there is a real present. But that by the, and here's the mystery. Somehow, by the work of the Spirit, Christ doesn't physically come down with us, but rather, like we see in Exodus 24, like we see in Mark 14, we are raised up into the upper room where Christ is, spiritually speaking. That's what's going on here. You don't look like you're coming up. You're just coming forward. But that's what's happening by the mysterious power of the Holy Spirit is that we are really communing with Jesus, spiritually speaking. Do you see the movements of Scripture here? Exodus 24. These men are on the mountaintop of God and having a very real experience, real, real presence of God, spiritually speaking. Then the Lord comes down. The Son of God becomes a man. He's there in the upper room physically and spiritually. They are enjoying the presence of God, eating and drinking with him. And now what do we enjoy? Here's the third movement of redemptive history. Now we enter, spiritually speaking, the upper room with Jesus, enjoying this mountaintop experience spiritually enjoying his presence. But what's coming for us, according to the book of Revelation? The wedding supper of the Lamb, in which Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, returns, physically speaking, and we will once again, both physically and spiritually, dine with him in glory. That's the good news. That's the story arc of the Bible. And we're currently living in that third stage. Church, we should rejoice in the spiritual presence of the Lord. When Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood, he's speaking sacramentally. There's a mysterious element of this, but it's compatible with the rest of scripture. It's compatible with the, the redemptive story arc of the gospel. 
The last thing I want you to see is from verse 26. It's often not included in the rest of these verses, but I think it, it more properly fits with the previous verses. The proper context of the Lord's Supper is worship. During their time together this night, Jesus had been instructing them the whole time. You can read this in the book of John. I mean, uh, in, in addition to unpacking uh, the Passover meal for them and instructing them in that, he also gave them the instruction found in John 13 through 17. That all happened on this night, all of those chapters in, the, in John's gospel. So the word of the Lord was taught. Commandments were given. Blessings were given. Songs were sung. Prayers were offered. The new covenant meal was established, and their time together closed with what, according to Mark 14, 26? The singing of a hymn. It would close with Psalm 118. This meal is established and enjoyed in the context of worship. It's absolutely necessary for the sacraments to be connected to the instruction of the word. The sacraments do not form the word. The word forms and regulates the sacraments. You've heard me say this before. Here at Christ the King Church, we're building up God's people by the ordinary means of grace. We're rooting our Christian practices in the historic Reformed faith, and we're preparing our covenant children in the Lord to be the continuing church. And in our Reformed tradition of the Christian faith, the sacraments are never to be separated from the word. I was driving at GA very early, way too early in the morning on the way to a jiu-jitsu class with a brother named Mike who's a teaching elder up in Halifax, Canada. And he was describing this one time that he uh, and his wife and children uh, visited a high church Anglican uh, congregation. And he said, you know, there's all this wonderful liturgy and these wonderful songs. And then uh, the, the, the priest launched into like a 35-minute talk about uh, a, a book that he had read. And it was not like this long illustration leading to a gospel. It was just, I'm literally just talking about something that I read or a play that I saw recently. And he looks at his watch and says, well, now it's time for the Lord's Supper. See, in a lot of Christian traditions, uh, the sacraments are the central part of the worship of the church. In the Reformed tradition, it's the word. You'll notice how we weave the word all throughout the corporate worship liturgy. You are welcomed into uh, worship with words found in the scriptures. You are called to worship with words found in God's holy scriptures. You're called to confession of your sin with Bible verses. You're assured of pardon, not from some uh, local modern poet, but rather from the word of God itself. The preaching of the word isn't the only time we make the word a part of worship because in our tradition, it's the word that holds everything else together. It's the word that outlines and regulates all that we do in corporate worship. We should understand that this meal is to be observed in the context of worship. Now, when it comes to sacraments, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1-4. through 4. Hear these words from Paul. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Are you catching what Paul's saying there? The content, the substance of the old covenant sacraments is the exact same as the new. It's Christ. Always has been, always will be. As Israel left Egypt under the cloud, passing through the sea, they were baptized, according to Paul. They were washed in the cloud and in the sea, just as we are washed in the baptismal waters like Gideon was today. And by the way, I'm not poking fun, but this is kind of humorous. 
But when Israel passed through the waters and Egypt tried to follow them, who got immersed and who got sprinkled? Have you ever thought about that? Somebody got dunked that day. One of the good guys. Keep this in mind. That was the baptism that Israel received as they passed through the waters. It was a sprinkling of those sea waters pouring out upon them, being misted, being sprinkled, having water poured on them as they passed through. Notice they drank of the same spiritual drink and partook of the same spiritual food that we do in the New Covenant Church. What, what Jesus does here in Mark 14 helps us to understand that the substance of all the Old Covenant meals is the same as this one. He's not trying to create confusion by establishing a new meal in the context of an old, old meal. But rather, what he's doing is making sure that we understand that there is a connection, and the connection is Christ. And did you notice in this passage that Jesus vowed to not drink of the cup a fourth time? See, there was a fourth cup in this liturgy. Technically, this Passover meal was never finished. Because after he holds up the cup of redemption, institutes the Lord's Supper, he says, I'm not going to drink the fruit of the vine. I'm not going to drink wine again until I drink it with you anew in the kingdom of God. You see, the fourth cup, this is so interesting, is sometimes called the cup of praise or the cup of restoration, the cup of consummation. And Jesus will not drink of that cup until his kingdom is fully and finally realized in the end. Instead of drinking that cup next, he took on another cup for us. He drank down the full wrath of God on the cross so that we might join him in his presence in that meal described in the book of Revelation, the wedding supper of the Lamb, in order that we might be a part of the bride of Christ, the, the body of his beloved. He drank down the wrath of God to the last drop for me and for you, and even for people that at this very moment do not yet love him. In fact, they hate him. But the promises of God are not only for the people in this room, but those who are far off. And despite the fact that they're far off today, the Holy Spirit, as Charles Spurgeon once said, is the hound of heaven. And the word of God goes out. And the Holy Ghost does his work and brings new children into the kingdom of God. That's the good news. That's the message of victory and hope that the church has for a sick and dying world. Jesus is king and he died for his people. So repent of your sins and believe in him. Church, it's crazy town USA out there, isn't it? People this past month openly rebelled against the creator and his created order. They marched in the streets declaring their opposition to God and his ordained plan for human sexuality, human society, and human families. Companies changed their logos and pandered to those rebels who are under a demonic delusion. And what do they all need? The same thing that I need. The same thing that you need. The grace of the king. The mercy of the Lord Jesus, who is the Lion of Judah, who allowed himself as the Lamb of God to be slaughtered so that people like us might be saved. Let the hearer understand.